Thank you for listening to audio from Glen Meadows Baptist Church. We hope it blesses you in your relationship with Jesus Christ. If you're not a current member of Glen Meadows, we encourage you to visit one of our services, Sundays at 9 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 6.30 p.m. Grab your Bible and turn to Philippians, and we will continue our series on what we believe. Now, we have discussed uh, several other topics in what we believe, and we've talked about our final authority and where we get our source of information. And we talked about the Scripture and why we believe this is inspired, infallible, inerrant, and it is profitable for, for doctrine, reproof, and correction. It's, it's, it, the Bible is the Word of God. That's what we concluded. And so we realize that we are a congregation that is ruled by the Scripture, and we follow the Scripture and its appropriate interpretation. Then we talked about uh, God Himself and the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. We discussed what man is like and how we were created in the very image of God, but because of sin and the original sin, we have fallen and we are corrupt and we sin by nature because we are sinners by nature. And and so, but Jesus, and we looked at this last week, He came to redeem us because of this fall and this problem, this crisis, tragedy of your soul and my soul being in sin, we are in need of a Savior. So we establish very clearly that all of us need Jesus. There's not some of us that kind of need Jesus and others that can help pick themselves up by their bootstraps, but we all are desperately in need of a Savior. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you can invite Him into your heart today. It's that simple. And we will go into more detail in just a second, but the reality of Jesus being the Savior and we all are in need, the reality is that there's nobody in this room better than anybody else, that we all have fallen short of the glory of God. And, but once you receive Christ as Savior, to where you realize that you are doomed without Christ, that you cannot measure up to God's commands and God's holiness, and therefore you can do what I did several years ago, is I acknowledged I needed a Savior, and so I repented of my sins. God, I'm sorry. And I learned what Christ did for me on the cross. He took my place, my judgment. And then I put my trust in Christ, not myself, but in Him. And then just basically in a prayer, just said, God, forgive me what I've done. I know that you died in my place and Jesus rose from the dead that I could be forgiven of everything. Come into my heart and make me new. And He saved me. And that happened to many of you, if not all of you. But the question is, what do you do from there? In fact, we have all kinds of horror stories of people that go to a church and they meet somebody that claims to be a Christian or they're, they work for somebody that claims to be a Christian or uh, they have a friend who claims to be a Christian, but yet they act like they're not a Christian. And the problem is they just, it's possible that they are a Christian. I mean, that's between them and God. But the reality is we all need to grow. And if we don't grow as Christians, then you'll act like a baby Christian, a brat, a stinky, someone who can't feed themselves, and someone who's always getting in trouble and falling down and screaming at everybody and demanding everything, and that's the way you act when you're a baby Christian. The Bible refers to new Christians as infants, but we are to grow in an environment like this. We are to grow when we meet with the Lord one-on-one. -on -one. We are to grow when we go through trials. We are to grow when we think about eternity, and if you don't grow, then there's, there's a problem. So if someone doesn't grow in their faith, one of two problems. One, you never had a faith. You just <clears throat> had an emotional experience, and you no longer have the resources to grow within your heart, 
within your soul, and you're not a Christian, you just like Christian things. Or the other problem is you are a Christian, and then you chose to not avail yourself to the things we're going to talk about here in a second. And so living things grow, right? Things that are alive grow. I had children, and they all grew, right? That's good. I mean, can you imagine being 19 years old, and you've never grown, and you're still begging your mom to put your toothpaste on your toothbrush? How ridiculous is that? Or you're at your wedding reception, and you're in a high chair, and somebody's feeding you Gerber. I mean, the in-laws would freak out, wouldn't they? They're just like, who is this kid? Why is she marrying him? You, know, well, you must grow. So same thing is true in the spiritual realm. We all must grow. But here, here's an issue. This is, this is a reality. Um, man, I want you to grow. I want to grow. But I can't want you to grow more than you want to grow. It just doesn't work that way. It gets frustrating. And, it, and if you're really not wanting to grow, then you're not. You're not going. You're not going to grow. I mean, you can't. Uh, God wants you to grow, but if you don't want to grow, you're not going to grow. You're not going to grow in your faith. So you have to develop an appetite, a desire to grow. And so in the book of Philippians, we'll just go in the first chapter, just part of the first chapter, and Paul is writing back to this church, and he says, I give thanks to you, my, I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, verse 3, chapter 1, always praying for you with joy for all of you in my every prayer because of your partnership with the gospel from the first day until now. I am sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. In other words, if you're a believer or since you're a believer, you have the full capacity to grow and to mature. How do I know that? Because God wants it. It's God's will. And, and it says right here that God is able to bring you to maturity to where you're not in a spiritual high chair drinking spiritual milk and never, ever growing. But you grow. Why? It's God's will. He is able to strengthen you. And brother, listen, let me tell you something. You want this. I mean, when you start to do life in the fullness of the Spirit, in light of the gospel, then everything changes. I mean, what, what every marriage needs is a mature believer that understands these things. Your marriage will radically change as you begin to grow as a Christian. Marriage is instituted by the Lord God Almighty. And when we go to the owner's manual to see how to do life together, it is all centered around you and I growing as a Christian. And if I'm not growing as a Christian, then you should pity my wife, right? Because I'm just, I don't bring the resources that are needed. Same thing with work. Work is something that is valuable to God. And God sees and calls you into work for His glory. And if you're not growing as a Christian, then you're just missing out in a lot of important decisions, right attitudes, knowing how to hire so that the things that matter to God matter to you and matters to everybody else and everything's, everybody's mind is renewed. When it comes to church, there's a lot of churches that are filled with immature people. And everybody demands their own way. They demand the temperature in a certain way, the budget in a certain way, the lights, the carpet, and all the things in a certain way. And you're like, man, give everybody a sucker and tell them they're immature. That's the way it happens. And then they fight against one another. That is a problem. So we want to mature. As we mature, the presence of the Lord becomes more vivid. You're able to see it, discern it clearly. Watch what he says here. He said, look, I have all this affection towards you. 
Um, it is right for me to think this way, verse 7, Philippians chapter 1, verse 7. It is right for me to think this way about you because I have you in my heart and you are all partners with me in the grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and establishment of the gospel. For God is, listen to him, this is Paul writing to a church. For God is my witness how I deeply miss all of you with the affections of Christ Jesus. I mean, these are really passionate words towards a group of people. And you may feel uncomfortable with another guy saying, man, I'm impassioned to get to know you and see you again, but you've got to understand where they came from. So if you will, uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 16 and let's just look look at the foundation of how these people came to know Christ. Now, some of us believe that it was a lot easier to be a Christian back in those days because you got to see some pretty amazing things. You got to walk with apostles and you got to see some incredible signs. And after all, they had all this time on their hands. They never had to go to movies. They never had to go to college or anything like that. I mean, they just had it so easy. And so we think back in those days, everything was a piece of cake. Although, let me just mention, has anybody had a sandwich lately? And you went, you just bought a loaf of bread, you brought it home, you just bought some meat, you bought some tomatoes and mayonnaise and put it together and you had yourself a nice sandwich. You know what they had to do to have a sandwich? They had to go pick some wheat. They had to go grind some wheat. They had to go knead it. They had to bake it. And then they could have a loaf of bread, much less kill the pig to come up with some ham. I mean, think about what all... So let's just get a perspective here of what it was like for them to walk with the Lord. They had to plan that out. But let's look at their beginning. What kinds of people made up the Philippian church that Paul was so passionate about? Well, First of all, he meets this lady named Lydia, verse 11 of Acts chapter 16. He's sailing from Troas. He had great experience there. They went straight to the course to Samothrius, the next day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, a Roman colony, which they had some advancements, but heavy paganism, all kinds of strange worship which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia. So Paul would naturally go to big cities. So he would go to Los Angeles. He would have gone to New York. He would have come to San Angelo because we are all thriving metropolises. That's what he would do. And then he would show up and then he would go to a synagogue. He did that everywhere. He went to a big city, then he went to the synagogue. But look what he does here. So he stops there. We stayed in that city for a number of days. On the Sabbath day, here's what he did. Went outside the city gate by the river, Uh, where we thought there was a place of prayer. So there was no synagogue because there was no mention of Yahweh God. There was no Jewish testimony, just paganism. We sat down and we spoke to the women gathered there. And so there was a ladies gathering and there was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. So she had a monotheistic view of God and there was a bunch of ladies there and apparently they were uh, doing like a Bethmore Bible study there on the side of the river. And I think it was the concho, I'm not sure, but it was there they were having this Bible study and this lady was a seller of purple. So what does that mean? It means she was a Madison Avenue lady. I mean, she knew all about Gucci and La Prada and all these other stuff like that. And she didn't, but she didn't know the father, but she knew Prada, right? That's, and she was decked out. You know why? She sold purple. What's purple? Purple's expensive. Kings ordered purple. You get this purple 
that was out of this uh, hypobronchiatic gland on top, inside a snail, inside a shell, and over there by Syria and the Phoenician coast, you would gather in thousands of little crustacean-type snails, and you would lay them on rocks, and you would step and squish and step and squish. And this purple dye, it take thousands of them to have enough dye to make one cloth. And so it was very, very expensive. And here this lady was, an incredible business fashion tycoon, and she is in she has a house in Thyatira. She's got a house in Philippi. She's probably got a house in New York and L.A., and she flies back and forth. And she is a mover and a shaker. And there she is. She wants to know God. So she just gets some ladies together, and they're just trying to call out to God. And then Paul comes up and says, hey, I've got what you're looking for. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. He shares the gospel. Her heart is open. That's what it says. And next thing you know, a couple of days go by, and her whole household gets saved. That word for household is where we get our word economics, oikos. And it means it's her whole economic system, her family, her friends, her neighbors, her workers. They come to know Christ because of her incredible influence. That's one of the ladies in the very first church. The second lady, not so nice. Look at what it says. So he's in Philippi. They, uh, while they're on their way to prayer, there's this slave girl meets them who has a spirit of perdition and made a large profit for her owners by fortune-telling. As she followed Paul and us, that's Luke writing, she cried out, These men are the slaves of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. So in the Roman mind, in the pagan mind, they don't really know what Yahweh God is or who He is, and they don't really understand what the salvation is. They knew of all kinds of salvations, but it was just it was kind of just mumbling words, and she was just mumbling words because she was demonized, demon-possessed, and these demons knew who Jesus is. They know about the message. In fact, there would be demons that when they'd see Jesus, they'd say, there is the Son of God, and they'd make these proclamations. It's like demons can't help it when their presence of godliness, they just blurt out, that's the truth, and that's shining the light. That's what happens. So anyway, you've got this demonized, crazy girl who is, has a demon of perdition, which that word actually is python. So she has a particular type of demon that is involved in the worship of Apollos, which leads to fortune-telling, and it said that she had this type of spirit. And it makes you want to wonder. Now, this is outside of Scripture. This is my wondering, just an opinion. Uh, traveled some places, some crazy places, and in India, talking with some pastors and there's uh, one guy I got to know really well, and he had pictures of his church with him. He carried pictures of his congregation with him, and he was showing me. And I don't carry around your picture with me. I, I'm sorry, I don't. I, I wish I did. But I have you on Facebook, so that's, that's good enough. So here he was, and he said, oh, yeah, here's Snakey. And I said, wait, 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 who's Snakey? And he said, oh, when we met her, she came in the church, and she starts slithering like a snake, so we call her Snakey. And I said, that's rude. That's mean. But they cast out these demons out of her, and she doesn't do that anymore. And I'm thinking, I wonder if there's a little connection here between what they call this lady, Python, that's, that's what it means, divination, Python, and worship this type of demon and activity. But nonetheless, here's what happened. She was a slave girl of men, but she was controlled by demons. And so what her demonic function manifestation was is she told fortunes. Now, they were probably not all right, but she had this clairvoyant spirit. So it actually, she made a lot of money. So people would say, you know, should, who should I marry? And she would say, Leroy or whatever. And, and then 
But then it came down to where generals and rulers would use these types of spirits to say, should I attack? How many ships? And so these dudes made a ton of money off of the slave girl who was possessed. And so Paul gets tired of her saying, these are men of the most high. And he turns around and he casts out the demons and shuts the business down because there's no more fortune telling going on. And the guys who owned the girl were mad because he destroyed their business by casting out the demons. Are you following? You get what's happening? And so they, they go to the magistrates and the magistrates said, yeah, you messed up their business. You owe. And, and so they decided to beat Paul and Silas and Luke and throw them in prison. And so this girl comes to know Christ. She gets saved. So this crazy girl that was possessed with demons and this very wealthy business lady, they're now part of the team. So who else is a part of Philippi? Well, they get thrown in prison. What happens next? Well, you got this prison guard. He is told, don't kill them, but keep them safe. So this prison guard takes them and he puts them in the stocks. Now, we think of stocks like the 16th century to where you've got this clamping you know boards and you put your head in it and your arms in it like this and people walk by and spit at you and make fun of you and ridicule you it's a it's a form of humiliation these stocks are different these stocks are where they put your legs in stocks that don't move and they begin to strap you and contort you and twist you to where you get into all kinds of cramps and pain and it is actually very miserable and so who is it that gets that job it's a roman soldier it's a big dude and he gets paid to make people cry. You know what I'm saying? It's kind of like, I was going to say kind of like a pediatrician, but that would have been wrong. But, <laughs> sorry. Just send those emails to jim at gmbc.org, okay? Jim at gmbc.org. So he just made people cry. All he wanted to do is hurt people, go home, open up his fridge, get a beer, and watch the gladiators defeat the lions. That's all he wanted to do. He, he was mean. But to have a job like that, I mean, you had to do your job. If you messed up in your job, the yeah, consequences were severe. If you were a guy that dishes out punishment for a living, guess what happens to you when you mess up? Well, here's what happened. Paul, Silas, Luke, they're in jail. And all of a sudden, they do what you would do if you were in jail, right? You would just start singing to God and praising God, and you would just be as happy as could be, lifting up praises. And God says, you know what? I'm going to rescue them. I'm going to show my power. The rocks began to shake. The chains came out of the walls. Everything fell apart, and the, and the prison bars opened, and they could just walk on out. The guard sees this, and he's like, I'm done for all the prisoners are escaping. He takes his sword. He's about to run himself through and kill himself. And Paul says, stop. We're still here. Why are you still here? And who shook this place? And so he begins to share the gospel. And it goes on to say that this jailer says, how can I be saved? And he says, call upon the name of the Lord and you shall be saved. And then they go back to his house. The one who had them in stocks, he invites them over for Sunday dinner, right? And they're sitting around the table, and the whole household gets saved. So this is the church planning team. You've got a lady who's a Madison Avenue lady. You've got a crazy girl that slithers on the floor. And then you've got this mean gladiator guy. And they're all together, and they are the body of Christ. Here's what we're saying here. We as a congregation have this kind of background. You're sitting next to somebody. You may not know their name, but they're of one of these sorts. 
There's some people here that you used to be really, really mean or really, really crazy or really, really compelled with business. You may have used to be a liar that lied all the time. You may be a, been a thief. You may have been this or that or self-consumed. Or you may have been a Boy Scout that needed Christ. But we all come from different backgrounds, and we need each other just as they needed one another. And Paul is saying this. Turn back to Philippians. So he calls back, and he goes, man, remember when you guys got saved? I remember too. And I have this affection for you. I spent time in your house I ate with you. you. Some of you, your demons were cast out. You all were healed and saved. And God has done an incredible work with you. And look at what he prays. Verse 9. This is powerful. And I pray this. So they had a miraculous start, just like you have. I pray that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment. That's what he prays. So here's what you and I do. Like we said earlier, that in order to grow, you've got to be on board. You cannot grow passively. You don't grow just by coming to church. You grow by engaging in the things of the Spirit. So that, watch this, so that you can determine what really matters. Circle that. You know the difference between just reading and studying? You study when you have a pencil. And when you're reading the Bible, you're just reading. But when you're studying it, you're circling verbs, you're drawing to nouns, you're looking at antecedents, you're looking at the points. And when there's a verse that says, so that, that's an important clause, and look at what he says, so that you can have the ability to determine what? Growing in love, growing in knowledge, growing in discernment, so that you can determine what? What matters? What's important? I mean, how can you do life if you can't tell what matters most? In fact, your whole life, what you're going to do the rest of the day is a decision to do what matters most. So you may think, be thinking, you know what, I need to mow the lawn, I need to fix this, I need to change the oil in my truck, I need to do all these things, I need to call somebody, visit, and then all of a sudden you go, you know what, I think I'll just watch golf. Well, to you, you really believe that watching TV and, and eating Oreos and milk, which is very Christ-like, I just got to admit, it's just, a, I mean, I, I have good thoughts when I do that. You actually make the conclusion, this matters most. It just does. You know what matters most to me by looking at my calendar, my day planner, and my bank account. You know what matters most to me by looking at these things. Where I spend my time, where I spend my resources, how I play, how I work, you know what matters most to me. And what matters most to me should matter most to God. What matters most to God should matter most to you. And then as you are growing as a Christian, your discernment gets sharp. You begin to know left, right, straight. You begin to know what matters most. There it is in God's Word. God's Word is speaking to you and me saying, discern what matters most. So what matters most? Let's just take a little journey through this text and just pick out some principles that Paul is bringing out to the people he loves most. And he says, look at this. So here's what matters most. That you are to be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory of God. In other words, what matters most is that you and I begin to look like Jesus. So... And here's what it looks like to look like Jesus. Verse 12. 
This is what matters most. Now, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me, now he's in jail right now, and he's talking about how he's in prison. He's probably in stocks again. What happened to me has actually resulted in the advantage of the gospel. You want to learn what matters most? Learn how to go through trials. Learn to make trials matter. Hard times. Whether it's relational problems, financial problems, physical problems, emotional problems, you and I, if we're going to grow as Christians, then we literally are to see what matters most to God in the midst of this trial. I want to tell you, nothing will make you grow faster than to walk through trials with the knowledge of the Word of God, with what blesses God. I mean, admit, when you first go into a trial, whether you just get a diagnosis or you just get abandoned or something crazy happens or maybe just emotionally you feel like you're losing it, then immediately at that moment there's a disorientation. You just got hit upside the head. I remember one time, man, I was at a Little League football game. I was really young. I had my helmet off and I was running down the sidelines. I wasn't in the game. I wasn't even in my team playing, but I was just running and I was watching this play and it was an incredible play. And this guy was about to get hit, but as I was running, I ran right into a telephone pole. I just went, I ran to it sideways and I fell and I fell back and I laid there and, and I looked over and everybody was looking at me and I looked at the game and they were still playing. And I remember thinking, I am so humiliated. I am so humiliated. But I got up and I didn't know which way I had been running. I was disoriented. You ever been disoriented? Been punched in the nose? You've been you maybe in a car wreck and you get your bell rung? Or maybe you slipped and fell? Sometimes when you go through trials, your initial response is disorientation. And you don't really know what to do with this. And so you need people like us around you to walk you through these things. It may take five minutes. It may take five months before you get reoriented, but that's what the body of Christ is for. But then once you know you're in the midst of the trial and you get your game face on, then there are two things that you realize following what he says here. Number one, he says, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard. In other words, I'm in jail so that other people will see the glory of God. In some strange way, in some unique way, way beyond us, mysterious way, when you and I go through trials, people can see the glory of God if we function based on what matters most. Secondly, other people gain confidence. Look at verse 14. Most of the brothers in the Lord have gained confidence from my imprisonment. You know what? One of the things I get to do as a pastor is, is on Thursdays, deacons will take me to go visit people who have been shut in. And uh, they elderly, sometimes they're elderly, sometimes they're not, but they're people that can't come to church. And so we'll go, and sometimes we'll do the Lord's Supper together. Sometimes we'll just sit and talk. But I get to hear the most amazing stories that I've ever heard. And their life with some of our elderly. And it, it, it almost every single time, I'll come home and tell Chris, I said, man, you wouldn't believe this story I heard today of how God worked through an incredible trial. And you know what it does? It just strengthens me to get to hear these things. If you don't talk to people, let's say you're of age to where you, you could talk to people who are 20, 30 years older than you, and you don't do it, you're really missing out. We desire to be a multi-generational church. Why? For this reason. So that wisdom can be blanketed can get down to the grassroots and we can learn these things. So it's an encouragement. But also, not only is it learning how to have a new view of trials, but a new view of people. Verse 15, Paul is saying, while I'm in prison, 
He's the chief apostle. There was a vacuum of leadership. And so all of these people came out of the woodworks, and he says, some are preaching for be- from out of bad motives. Some are preaching because of this reason, because of this reason. And he says this, stop judging people's motives. They're preaching the gospel. Leave them alone. So here's the point. If you want to know what matters most to God, know this, people matter most to God. And when I assign a false motive to somebody, then it sets me up as God, as if I really know what's going on behind the scenes. You say, you might be thinking somebody doesn't work enough and you assign them a motive and you begin to judge them. Don't do that. That's wrong. Somebody doesn't call you back or email you. They're kind of ghosting you. And all of a sudden you assign a bad motive. And really what that says, says more about your heart than it says about their heart. See, spiritual maturity And looking at the things that matter, you begin to see other people through the eyes of Christ. You may be thinking, man, every time I think of this person, I just get indigestion. I know what that's like. You think about somebody, it just kind of makes you mad. And so, but a mature Christian does this. A mature Christian says, God, every time you tell, you say, God, every time I think of this guy, I just start feeling angry. God, would you show me how you see this person? God, would you show me what you see in this person that motivated you to send your own son to massacre him on the cross for this one individual? Could you just let me see that? The next thing you know, you have waves of compassion just washing over you and you no longer assign motives to other people, but you let God deal with other people and you start dealing with yourself. That's what matters to God. Next. Then he also says, this trial that I'm going through and all of these things, because I know this will lead to my deliverance through your prayers and help from the Spirit of Jesus Christ. And he says this, my eager expectation, verse 20, and hope is that I will not be ashamed about anything, but that now as always with all boldness, Christ will be highly honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Here's what he's saying. And this is what maturity is. You become bold with what matters. You're just bold. You're bold about Jesus. You're bold about God. You're bold about the things that He likes. You're bold about, hey, listen, why don't we just stop slandering the politics and we just start talking about the issues? How about that for a change? How how do Christians talk about all of these issues of injustice without slandering people? Would someone please on Facebook Start being a demonstration of what it's like to not be a slanderer, but be bold about the truth and what the truth is. How about that? Man, you will stick out. You will. And you may get all kinds of criticism because you're not joining in the, the ravaging, ripping apart of the flesh of other people, but you're willing to just state the truth and do it in love. That's what's bold. You know what else is bold? About the gospel, about People outside of Christ are doomed without the Lord Jesus. And you begin to live your life accordingly because the gospel matters to God. Now, I'm not saying you stand on a street corner and you get your little soapbox and you just start preaching and shaking your Bible at people. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that when it's time to, be st- when it's time to stand to be counted, you stand and you speak forth with boldness. Now, when I'm not being bold and I cower down, then I have to ask myself, why? Does this not matter to you? Am I not growing in knowledge? Am I not growing in love? 
Or am I willing to let what ma- the things that matter to God matter to me? You know what matter? <laughs> you know what I'm bold about? I'm bold about the things that matter to me. I'll show you the pictures of my grandkids. I'll do it so fast. Why? They matter to me. I'll tell you about my favorite restaurants just like that. Why? Because it matters to me. I like my favorite restaurants. I'm bold about these things. You know why? I participate with my grandchildren. I participate at these restaurants. I participate with the greatest college football team in America. I'm bold about it. That's right. We all have our different ones. Yeah, I'm getting gigging signs and longhorn signs. I'm getting all kinds of signs. But you're, I'm bold about it. Why? I participate. I watch. I wear their shirt. Why aren't, why aren't we bold about Jesus? Are we not participating? Are we not growing? Can I ask that question? Is that a fair question? Why aren't we bold about the things that matter? Is it possibly because we're not participating in the things that matter? Now, why would I do that? Well, let's look at the fourth thing. Look at this. So so here's what matters most. So first was have a new view of trials because they matter. Have a new view of people because they matter. Have a new view of boldness because they matter. And now have a new view of eternity because it matters. Look at verse 21. For, for me, living is Christ and dying is gain. Whew. Ultimately, this is where it all changes. Are you afraid of death? Do you know where you're going to spend eternity? Do you know what happens the moment you stop breathing here and you start breathing there? Do you know what happens on that day when you die and you walk into the presence of God and you have a new capacity to see and to hear and to feel and to know and to communicate on a whole new level that you can't even imagine no matter how many times you sing, I can only imagine. Do you know, can you imagine that? what it's going to be like. God gave you an imagination. Join me for a second. Follow me what it's like to end here and to be there and know that everything changes. And Paul says, for me to live is Christ, but to die is even better. Man, you are incredibly dangerous to Satan when you no longer fear death. Right? He didn't like you. Because if he can keep you and me worried about this life, then we don't live for the next life. And what really matters to God, I mean, I know he's concerned about floods and tornadoes and, and different kinds of diseases. I know he is. But you know what he's really concerned about? Is getting every soul in heaven. That's what he's really concerned about. Do you know there's one thing that, I mean, there's several things we'll do in heaven. We will be watching my favorite college football team play. <laughs> We will, be, we will be working, right? I, I will actually at that time, according to my, my certain brothers, certain friends of mine, they will tell me that when I get to heaven, I will be able to speak Spanish because everybody there will be speaking Spanish. That's what they tell me. Could be true. But work, enjoyment, pets, right? My dog, because all dogs go to heaven, but all cats go to, <laughs> Right? So we will enjoy, we will enjoy all of those things. Magnum bars. Yes. The flesh will be done away with. The things that that make you cry 
is gone because nothing up there will make you cry. And, and to live is Christ, that if we're here, we're going to live for Christ, but to die is gain so that, listen, because that day matters, this day matters. Because that day changes everything, th- it should change this day and to what is most valuable to you. So brothers and sisters, follow me here. Let's follow God's word. He wants you and me to grow in knowledge and every kind of discernment so that you can determine what really matters and can be pure and blameless when Jesus comes back. Thank you again for listening to audio from Pastor Mac Roller at Glenmeadows Baptist Church. For previous sermons and more information, please check out our website at gmbc.org.